0: very special guest today, an innovator, and as you listen, you'll see a very intelligent thinker, um, a rider who was the first for me to do the super tuck while pedaling, the first rider that I know of that used a dropper post in a race, as well as one of the best interviews after a Tour de France stage ever. Jens, Matej Mahorek today, that was a great conversation with a great person. Yes, it was. And I love the part how he
1: explained, how he prepared the downhill of Milan Sanremo, the legendary downhill of Milan Sanremo, where he ended up winning. Absolutely
0: brilliant to hear of how he prepared that one. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation with Matej Mahoric. Okay, everyone. Matej Mahoric joins us today on Bobby and Jens. Matej, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Man, I told you when we were planning this that... um, we'd be between 45 minutes and an hour. So I'm going to keep my eye on the clock because you are one of the most interesting riders that I've ever followed or been a fan of. So just keep that in mind. But, you know, again, huge fan of yours. Um, we understand that you actually just got back from the Canadian races. You're no, um, stranger to those but how is the the jet lag and the travel back and how was your experience at those canadian races
2: well uh firstly thank you for all your compliments uh the canadian races were great uh it was uh as always a great atmosphere um personally i also like the parkour um of both races except the fact that this year in montreal we went so freaking fast the whole day that uh, at the end uh, it was a uh, A day for pure climbers, uh, so count me out. (laughs) But uh, apart from that, it was a a pleasure as always. Fans are great. Um, Parkour is nice. Um, You get to see a different uh, part of the world that you're used to. And uh, yeah, uh, my travel back was also quite smooth. I went um, straight after the race back to to Monaco. And uh, and today I'm already... uh, on, on my way for a short vacation with my kids to Croatia.
1: So does it mean your season is finished for, for now or just a little break and you have a few more races coming up?
2: Um, so I will have uh, another two races coming up in uh, two weeks time. I will do a Tour of Croatia um, and then I will do Gravel World Championships. Once they unveiled the route and all the details, uh, we are now, what, three weeks to the race and we still don't know much. So, uh, yeah, uh, work in progress on that side. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Merida might have uh,
0: something new to show uh, to the world, so they want me uh, to be there and compete. I have a question. You know, as a North American rider, having to leave our families and go over to Europe and deal with the time change and stuff like that, what do... You you and the other european riders enjoy about coming and racing in north america because like you've raced in north america a lot and even raced for a north american team at the start of your career what what are the some of those things that you look forward to and what are some of those challenges that you guys have to think about when you come over here so i did race quite a bit um
2: overall but in uh... The last couple of years, uh, the only races I did in America were basically the races in, in Canada, but I do have experience from the past. It's different to racing in Europe. Um, I wouldn't say it's different because of uh, because of jet lag or, uh, or that sort of stuff. I would say it's different uh, because of the nature of the roads. Um, roads tend to be much, much wider, faster, um, and that changes everything. There's no roundabouts, obviously. No (laughs) tiny, narrow sections, usually. And, uh, you need to adapt. It's not, I won't say it's a different sport, but it's very, very different to racing in Europe. Especially, like the racing, the races, the two races in Canada are considered to be pretty technical, but in a completely different uh, sense than, say, the classics in Belgium or, uh, or other classics in Europe. Because, In Europe, you just make sure you enter the narrow section in front and then you stay there. You don't need any special power or uh, any other things that you need to consider. You just need to enter the the narrow section in front and you're basically set for a good result. Whereas uh, in a race like like most races in North America, when you have wide routes, you need to consider being efficient um, in the peloton in a completely different way. Uh, you need to, obviously, if there's a narrow turn or whatever, you, you it's better that you are uh, in a good position, so more as much as to the front as possible. But then you need to take it a little bit easier, slide maybe all the way to the back of the pedal, and uh, fix your position later on when there is time, when there is a descent section coming up, like a straight big descent where everybody starts to come around each other again. Uh, we call it a washing machine effect, no? When the peloton starts to mix up again. So um, I would say it's easier to race in Europe because it's less focus. focused. You just focus to be in front when it matters and then you stay there. And in US or America, you need to like constantly focus. You need to think about where you are in the peloton and where you want to be. And that's a lot of concentration for a, for a, for a race like Montreal. that's like six hours.
1: What I always noticed is that not at the World Tour Race, but let's say Tour California. The roads uh-huh. are twice as big and the pelotons is only 130 riders. Yeah. So there's <laughs> so much more space for everyone. I loved racing in the US. The only thing I missed over there was some proper breakfast bread. You always have just a soft toast, <laughs> and it's just not me. But uh, back, back to you, um, Mate. Hey, um, we we did talk to some of the best climbers. We just recently had Tony Martin, one of the best time trialers. Now we talked to you as probably one of the best downhillers or descenders in this period of racing. How how do you train to become a better downhiller? You take more risk. For example, the descent of the podio when you won, how often did you do it before in training or you were just mentally focusing on it and you had a video clip of it in your mind? How do you train to become better on downhilling, on on descending?
2: I think uh, definitely by practice. So it helps if you recon the descent before. So if you... The more times you've ridden it, the better you get at it, no? It's like a criterium race. You don't know the corners, like first 8 or 9 or 10 or 12 times around. But then as you do it over and over and over again, you get more familiar. And um, you take the line better, you carry the speed better. Everything goes a little bit better. So obviously, San Remo was a a big, 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 big... um, dream of mine. Um, and I am fortunate to to live in the area. Um, it's quite close to, to Monaco. So I did train quite a bit on those routes. And then in 2021, or sorry, 2022, um, before we planned or when we planned to use the dropper suitpost, I actually one time, um, like a month before the race, when I I uh, was driving back to from Monaco to Slovenia, I stopped in uh, in San Remo in the morning. Uh, I parked my car and I did a five-hour training ride, but just doing loops of project climb. So uh, up, uh, down the way the the race goes, and then back on the on the opposite direction of the race, where the race doesn't go to cut to go back to the to the climb section so uh that accounts for quite uh quite a few laps and uh you get familiar with the lights even though traffic was obviously open i didn't consider pushing the limits or, or whatever i just um you learn after uh that many laps you see where the holes are where the the obstacles are where uh the yeah, obviously, it's just corners, so you know already which one closes and which one not, but it really helps that you have it in your uh, subconsciousness, no? that you don't have to think about it, and that your brain knows exactly what's coming up without thinking about it. It's like a video game, no? Uh, if you do the same course over and over again in a video game, after, after a certain point, you don't need to think about it anymore. It's all on autopilot, so uh, that's what you aim for. Uh, if you really want to be to beat the best in the world, um, but obviously, if we talk now about uh, pure or a raw talent for descending, that's a completely different thing. When you most of the time, when we race stage races, we don't actually know the route ahead, um, so you go kind of blind. Um, then, obviously, racing line is a little bit different, and technique is completely different because uh, if you actually know. Uh, where you're going, then you take a completely set uh, predetermined line that know, that you know is working and that's a lot faster than uh, if you take it with a little bit of caution because you don't know what's coming after the corner and still sometimes you can mess up more, uh, not knowing if it closes big, big time you need to touch breaks in the, in the apex and that loses you most of the speed, so uh, yeah, it's a different technique, but um, I would say um, I'm probably not the best, but I'm quite good at both. I usually use descents to, to my advantage, but there's definitely also some other very daring riders in the world that are maybe willing to risk more than I am uh, having two kids
0: at home. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, risk. That seems to be... The, 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 real buzzword and fear. And I think throughout our careers, you start to see that risk. You start to feel, fear, fear, feel that fear. Yes. And then those kids at home start to come into your head and and everything like that. Oh, I mean, it, it's so hard to talk to people when they ask about descending because you know, there's, there's a price to pay if you make a, make a mistake. Right. And it's, it's hard to train. I, I once had a a Russian coach when I was very, very young at the Olympic Training Center, and I asked him that question and he actually suggested to put on football pads like a helmet, American football pads, you know, the full uh, hip pads, the, the shoulder pads, the helmet. And and so if you crashed, you wouldn't get hurt as bad. But I never really took that into uh, into my game plan. But, Mate, there's another thing that I want to ask you about. Um, You know, you've been a solid rider for a very long time. You won the Junior Worlds in 2012. You won the Under-23 Worlds in 2013. You've won stages in all three Grand Tours. Mm -hmm. You've won some big uh, stage races, the overall GC of those stage races. But a couple things kind of stick out to me. Um, your win in the 2013 under 23 worlds, I was watching the screen and I saw this kid doing the pedaling super tuck. And I had never seen that before. Like you, in my opinion, you invented that. I'm not sure if you, if, if that's the truth or whatnot, but tell us a little bit about the genesis of the pedaling super tuck.
2: Uh, yeah, I don't know if I invented that, but I, I didn't see it before, uh, in, in races before I actually started doing it. Uh, it was me and my mates in, um, when we were basically kids, when we were like 15 or 16 years old, we started to do that because I grew up in a small village, uh, just on the edge of, of the Alps and uh my parents house is basically in the mountains on top of a valley and to go to meet my mates for training i had to descend down that valley for like i don't know 12 kilometers or something and the road was uh, a typical valley road not like there was maybe one k of a descent then two k slightly down uh, 500 meters slightly up and again down the valley and so on so um I was always running a little bit late, but I didn't want to. I knew I could make time back on on the way there, uh, but I didn't want to come there uh, fatigued already before we even started the ride. So uh, it started with uh, with the super pack, and then yeah, I don't know how we started to to pedal doing it, and we we realized that it was uh, it was quite a bit. Uh, more efficient. I wouldn't say faster because it's still faster if you go in the saddle and pedal uh, as hard as you can because you can produce way more power. But uh, to pedal in a super tuck, you can still do I don't know two hundred watts or whatever, and um, that obviously propels you forward um, and you go quite fast. I would say almost as fast as if you if you went um, pushing as hard as you possibly could. But, of course, you're not um, fatigued. You don't accumulate any fatigue. So, yeah, when I was a junior, um, I started to use it in racing um, to my advantage many times. And, uh, yeah, and then, I don't know what year it was. A couple of years ago, the UCI uh, banned it. I think uh, I kind of agreed with that decision. Um, It didn't look great on television and uh, probably not the best thing you can show to, to young cyclists um, but uh, yeah except now when you have a really really long straight decent without corners your back hurts as, uh, a lot before. because you can't before you just sat down and you did the super tuck and you would basically uh, rest on the bike and now your whole back is uh, is quite tight and uh, it starts to hurt after five or so minutes when you go state, this is the only thing I miss about it.
1: Um, just to make you laugh, I'm retired now nine years. If yeah. I have a downhill, I still use the super tag. Yeah, if also, if nobody watches it. me, of course I do it. Of course, <laughs> I don't pedal, but, but I, I still like Yeah, it, uh, <clears throat> but um, so there was your first like brilliant invention, the pedaling super tuck. Then you came up with the idea to use the dropper post. You quickly talked about already in, in your last answer. When and how? Did you decide to use the dropper post?
2: Uh, the idea was not at all mine. The idea was uh, born with Philip Tischma, our head mechanic. Um, mm-hmm. He came to me and he asked me more or less at the end of the season if I would consider using a dropper seat post, if I thought it would give me any advantage. Um, As a person, I don't want to close doors on ideas too soon. So I uh, stayed kind of neutral about it. I said, I think it's uh, something new, but uh, I wasn't too sure if it would make a difference or not. But uh, I said, if he can, if the team can arrange a bike um, with that already set up, then I would be more than... uh, happy to test and uh, tell my opinion. And then Philip uh, actually uh, yeah, uh, rolled up his sleeves. And um, during that winter in 2021, at the end of 2021, um, he got me uh, a Scultura with a dropper seat post. It was actually not the one we later decided to use in the race. It was a dropper with a with a big travel, like the one you would find on enduro bikes. Um, and the first day I tried it, I immediately felt in love. I, I thought it was a huge difference. Um, probably also due to the fact that it was winter time and we did test in Slovenia at a close to service course. So the roads were... <laughs> A little bit slippery and damped, uh so it definitely felt more in control with the with the dropper. But uh, yeah, we cu- we quickly realized that if you have too much travel, it's actually more of a disadvantage than advantage. So at the end, we opted for a six centimeter uh, travel uh, option, which uh, gives you lowers your center of gravity just enough, um, and on the same time, it keeps your setup. Uh, high enough that you can push against it and sort of use your weight to lean in the corner. Um, And I think that works really, really well. I've used the bike since, um, I mean, also in most of the mountain stages we do. And uh, I still think, even though it's not widely used in the peloton, I still think um, it's definitely safer. Um, I don't know if it's faster, uh, but it definitely takes, I don't think you necessarily go, f- you can go any faster with it, but when you go as fast as you can, it takes the the edge of, you feel more secure, you feel way more in control and it's much easier to fix your mistakes. Um, Sort of like I lost the front and rear end both in the last corner, it's a rainbow that I won. Uh, and I almost uh, finished inside the the, the flowers thing uh, next to the next to the road. Uh, but when you sleep like this, if you have a dropper because your saddle is lower, you have uh, that little bit more of uh, of space actually uh, to to fix that with with uh, with your body uh, that readjusts uh, all the system. Um, and I think it's yeah, I feel more secure. So I think it's the future. I think in a couple of years, it will, the technology will pass on from maybe the gravel bikes. More and more people will demand it. And then as more people start to try it, for sure, it's going to widespread. Uh, but at the moment, of course, it's quite a high cost of developing that for uh, for the current, uh, very specific aeroframes that we have on the market. Uh, there will be a very expensive opposite post to develop just for one type of bike.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the dropper seat post, uh, I'm riding my, uh, my gravel bike more and more, and I wish I had, uh, a dropper post on my gravel bike for sure. But, um, thanks for letting us hear about that because we haven't really heard much about that since you actually used it in Milan San Remo, but it's cool to hear that you're, you're still using that technology. And like you said, hopefully it will come more to the mass market mainstream producers. Um, the last thing of these like three real kind of important things was your interview after the stage 19 of the Tour de France this year. I think that it was the most honest, well thought out interview that I'd ever seen. And I said that immediately. And then the next day, it just seemed like everyone in the world appreciated it just as much if I, as I did. Um, To our listeners and our viewers, if you have not heard this, just Google Matej Mahorich interview and prepare to maybe wipe uh, a tear from your eye, as well as be absolutely influenced and motivated by this young man. So again, compliments on that interview, but how can you think that clearly and be that honest and open after winning a stage of the Tour de France and being absolutely fatigued. I mean, this was the 19th stage. Yeah,
2: exactly. I think the fact that it was the 19th stage had a lot to do with it. You basically just spent a month on the road with your colleagues, uh, not just from your team, but also from every other team. You've been together in, uh, in the groups off the back on the mountain days. You've tried to help each other out as much as you can um even if sometimes it's just a fresh bottle it can make a difference and make you a friend and uh you feel with everyone else by the end of a of a ground tour because you see the riders who had success which are obviously in minority and then you see all the others that worked just as hard and uh or maybe not uh, good or lucky enough to actually pull something off, and you see how it affects uh, everyone around them, how it affects uh, their teams. And I still think, like personally, uh, to be a professional cyclist and to win bike races is my job. No, so what I do, the results I achieve uh, during races, um, they have a direct. Uh, effect on on everyone within the organization within the team no, and um, that's quite a bit of uh, responsibility and uh, yeah you, you do lay that pressure on yourself and um, you know how hard you work. and then this tour uh, there was a specific situation because I did um, do well in a, in a stage before I was third on stage in stage nine on with it all. Um, normally I wouldn't even like even this year I didn't plan to go in the breakaway on that day I was not supposed to I just tried to close the gap for uh, for uh, for the two climbers that we have in the team and uh, they did a rush in the back and I ended up in the breakaway by mistake but um, uh, obviously with a one hour uh, mountain top finish climb at the end I didn't have or consider myself uh, to have a chance to win the stage, but I wanted to honor uh, Gino uh, after what's, uh, what's happened uh, uh, a month and a half before the tour. And uh, yeah, obviously Gino was a climber, so that day I said to myself, even though I didn't think I had a chance, that I need to tie uh, for him and that I would do, really give my best uh, because of that. And um, I ended up third on the stage, not too far off winning. I think if I joined Jorgensen in his attack before, um, or if the group in the back would hesitate a little bit more, I would have uh, probably a good chance of 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 winning the stage. But uh, yeah, to be third in the stage in the Tour de France, it's quite a hard thing to do. Um not everyone is probably capable of doing it, even the ones who are at the tour. And uh mm. and I knew I had super good legs and I knew that also having already mm. achieved a third place in the stage, it's not the most uh visible thing, you know. It's not it's not gonna make uh your team much uh, happier or uh, yeah, proud of 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 this achievement. No, there's a huge gap uh, between a podium and into actually winning a stage. If you win a stage, it changes your life. It puts a cherry on top of not your season but your career in most cases. And if you if you end up being third in the stage, it means that you're a really really good bike rider but uh, you're not just yet uh, to the front stage with it And um, during stage 19, I knew it was the last chance for everyone to shine. And uh, you, of course, you dream of being that guy. But I know, I've done it too many times to not know how hard and un- unlikely it is that it's you who succeeds, no? Because it's not just about the strength, it's not just about the power, it's um, also about perseverance, about uh, being lucky on the day, being in the right move, um, spending energy when you need to, about racecraft in general, and all those things, and at the end, you need to be also confident, and when the moment comes, the hardest thing is when the moment comes, that split-second decision when somebody makes the the winning attack to actually uh, be able to react and not fear Uh, to actually, in that moment, close your eyes and do your best and follow and just suffer for 10 seconds and see what happens. Because most people, they say, yeah, but what if I explode? And I think many times I've seen in the biggest, biggest, most important races, when the actual moment of we say, we call it explosion comes, then uh, not everyone can do their best effort that they would normally be able to do in training, so quite tricky and um, yeah to be for the third time in my life um, to be able to pull it off it's almost uh, yeah from from one point of view it made me feel guilty about myself because I knew that yeah um, I robbed someone else of of the chance to to change his career and his life probably, but at the same time I worked just as hard as anyone and I knew I dreamt and did everything I possibly could to all the sacrifices to be up there to be to be ready to be um, able to to actually compete for that and uh, you really really wish that with everything. With yeah, with everything. So yeah, you feel proud of your achievement, but also you feel sorry for your colleagues at the same time.
1: Um, that is really like you know you thought about that more than once, didn't you? Yeah,
2: you, I mean, as a professional athlete, you think about that all the time. Mm. I don't think that uh, who who wins the race. Is a better person than the the guy who finishes second or last. But I still think it's fun to compete. Uh, I love to to race bikes. I love the adrenaline of racing bikes. I will miss it when I stop. I will also enjoy when I stop because of uh, the lack of pressure uh, that we probably, yeah, uh, the pressure is probably uh off or it goes away uh when you when you stop racing but uh yeah it's I don't know it's always to me it always felt um strange to have to race against your friends but then it's super fun and super nice to watch. I also I'm a huge fan of cycling myself and uh I wouldn't say that I follow many other sports but cycling is really uh my passion I think I would Probably be the same, even if I had a normal
0: uh, office job. And we'll be right back after this short break.
1: And now back to our chat with Matei.
0: I see that you, you know, we we discussed that you just came back from the Canadian races, and you did some racing with the Tour of Utah the US Pro Challenge Tour of Alberta back when you were a little younger and you actually raced on the Garmin Cannondale team. Um, why I bring that up is your English is so good. Wh- where did you... Is, is that where you learned how to speak good <laughs> English?
2: Um, I don't think so. I think it's because uh, Slovenian language is only spoken by 2 million people and we basically do everything else. We do on the internet and sometimes also elsewhere in English. Um, I watch most of the movies and series I watch in English with English subtitles. Uh, I read uh, English books sometimes because not all of them are uh, translated to Slovenian. And uh, yeah, uh, by by now it doesn't make a lot of difference if uh, if I have to read or uh, listen or watch something in English or in Slovenian. Uh, or in Italian, for that uh, for that matter. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's perfect. You can definitely hear that I'm not a native speaker, but it's yeah, it's good enough that I can uh, communicate. Okay.
1: Hey, um, you just brought an interesting point up. Slovenia has only about two million people living there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Bobby pointed out before the US is 330 million, Germany 83 million. How, in the name of God? Can a country with two million people have so many fantastic bike riders? What's the reason behind that? Is that your national sport or is it something in the junior training, junior racing program which brings the best talent to the top? How would you explain it?
2: In general, it's quite easy to explain, actually. Uh, If you visit the country, you see the difference in society in general, in in the culture in general. So if you pick any random place in Slovenia um, a village a small city um, it would have all or not all but a lot of sports infrastructure in reach probably most by bike um, and if not definitely by, by car with less than 10 to 15 minutes drive, no? you would have a swimming pool, a uh, track and field, a uh, football a uh, uh, football how you say, a uh, place to play football, place to play basketball, volleyball um and you would hope probably have not just facilities but also sports teams for uh, especially for children and for recreational adults and sometimes uh, professional uh, clubs that actually practice those sports and you as I, when I was a child, you could pick from a wide variety of, of sports and it was, it was completely usual that um, each child, uh, each friend of mine did at least one, if not two sports, sometimes one in summer, one in winter and sometimes two at the same time. Um, almost no one uh, practiced nothing and if they did, if they didn't do sports, they for sure, they, uh, we're playing an instrument or something like this so that's quite common in slovenia also now if we just um, isolate and focus on cycling uh, it's probably the perfect place to grow up if you want to be a professional bike rider because um, the terrain is so varied you have everything you could possibly desire for i mean if if you were to choose the the best the perfect place for a a training camp, for a professional team, for a professional cycling team, and it doesn't have to be at altitude, I would 100% pick uh, the town where I grew up. I've never seen anything remotely uh, as good because you have a one-hour climb, uh, many 40-minute climbs, um, then you have an area with all those uh, fifteen to 20-minute climbs, then you have an area... That's a little bit like Belgium uh, with with uh, steeper, shorter, uh, more punchy climbs of, of one to two to three minutes. And then you have a huge plane towards Ljubljana where you can train uh, with a TT bike and it's completely almost completely flat. And you can do car pacing. Uh, you have so many roads that are not... Uh, there's not a lot of traffic. You can pick uh, Belgium-style roads of one lane where you can just maybe, um, yeah, bounce into a tractor, but not really many cars. And yeah, it's almost like a fairy tale land for a, to be a professional cyclist. Also, the weather is pretty good the year all year around, except for the winter time in December, January, February. It's not great, but you can still then from where I from like from where my from where I grew up, you just drive your car for fifty minutes, and you're basically at the seaside, and then you have Mediterranean climate with. Uh, usually around 10 degrees during winter time, so you can train uh, completely fine um, okay. there in the winter if you need to. And, uh, yeah, just makes it uh, um, the best possible thing. Also, I think the quality of food is quite high. Um, being on the verge of the Alps, it yeah, um, there's still a lot of farming. You can have uh, not even... Um, biological or uh i don't know with what label on them eggs but you probably your grandmother has eggs or your mother or uh, a friend of yours or, or you yourself no so uh yeah if i if i do fried eggs in the morning i i probably provided food for those chickens to eat so that's i think that makes a difference at the end and uh all that together contributes to to a nation that's probably, uh, very successful, uh, in sports per capita. But then if you, yeah, again, if you isolate cycling, I think a place like Belgium or Basque country is even more successful considering how many, how much success they've had with, uh, maybe just a tiny bit, uh, more people than we have.
0: Well, the current, current Peloton of Slovenian riders are, you know, is, is very, very high. We know that. But what is the development like for all the young boys and girls out there? Is the federation really looking at this as an opportunity to become uh, even more of a world power in cycling?
2: No, I think the fact that we have, um, I think currently three of Slovenian riders in top 20 of the UCI ranking is a little bit of a coincidence. Hmm. Um, Each of us found our own way into the sport. I started early uh, as a 12-year-old, so did today. Today was actually targeted. I think um, himself or his brother did a test uh, and were told that they could be good at the sport, so they were invited into a club. And I just found my own way. I just wanted to do this um, because my friend started to do it and I wanted to hang out with him and the other guys that started. Um, And I felt in love in in the first moment. Um, and then pretty obviously came from another sport and very late, so that's even a completely different story. But um, there are some young guys um, that are very promising at the moment. But um, yeah, not yeah. I I don't know if uh, uh, how, for how much longer this is gonna last. You know, there's always a, a time. When a nation prevails no, in cycling, it has happened with Slovakia before, with Sagan or with Ireland, even, I don't know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And it happens sometimes, but it usually doesn't last. So I hope our lasts as long as it can. But uh, yeah, it's probably unlikely, I would say.
1: So when you mentioned, um, or Bobby asked also about uh, the federation, um, we just have seen the world championships with. Which seemed to be a course, a circuit that would have suited you with corners, tricky up and down change of rhythm. Why were you not there? Your team looked strong, and is um, there a reason why you you weren't there? Or
2: yes, uh, first I I at the start of the year I was planning to be there. I was planning the goal the World Championships to be a big goal of mine, but then at the start of the tour, um, I realized. Uh, what the level was more or less and I realized that uh, even I knew that the parkour is very very hot and very selective and I knew that uh, we call it in our jargon we call it it's, it's gonna be one at each angle at the finish you know <laughs> it's not gonna be a, a reduced uh, sprint it's gonna be yeah, every man fucking for themselves and um in my mind, that if I did everything perfectly, I could end up from place 5 to place 10, no? And um, that's only if I didn't crash, if everything went smooth. And, uh, yeah. Mm. I felt that in that case, it was probably better, or not probably, but in my mind, it was better to go to a Tour of Poland and Renewy and try, try to win at least one of those. To World Tour races because uh, I knew that because of World Championships, uh, being held on a different date this year, um, the competition there wouldn't be so tight, and that I had a quite a good shot, probably better shot at winning Poland or Renewi than finishing top five in the World Championships. And to finish sixth in the World Championships, or win Tour of Poland or Ranevich Tour, um, yeah, I just I chose the latter. And uh, I think it was the right call. Still, um, yeah, um, there might be uh, another chance coming up in the in the upcoming years, so and then I might uh, I might give a go.
0: Well, you made the right decision. You know, you won you won Tour of Poland. You're still going good. Um, you know, going back and looking at you know when you started, at least when that was recorded on the internet. You've raced all over the planet, so we talked about your favorite place to train. What is your favorite race? My favorite race is definitely
2: Paris Roubaix. Um, happens just one time in a year, and uh, it's different to anything else. I don't know why, but the first time I came there in 2019, I said I'm never doing. I'm never coming back again ever. And uh, I did come back in 2021 and Sony won. Um, And I don't know, I guess this changed my perspective of the race. And I'm in love ever since. I finished fifth in 2022. And I was even better this year uh, condition-wise. But I was just a little bit too far back at the crucial moment when the split happened. Was I was quite I was hurting a lot from the crash I had in uh, in Flanders uh, six days before seven days before so um, was not the best approach but uh, I have another chance next year and the year after that and probably the year after that as well so <laughs> uh, yeah definitely my favorite race
1: so then the way um, you talk about your racing you're happy with your position in your career or would you ever consider to try a GC in a Grand Tour just maybe one time to hey let's pick Maybe one that's, there's less competition there and I try a GC and a Grand Tour? Or you go, no, I'm happy to be a stage hunter, to go for the classics. I mean, you had a fantastic career and you happy with that? Or you go, ah, oh, maybe I want to have a little go at that. You go, nah, that's out of my league.
2: Yeah, no, I'm happy and proud about my career so far. I think I can be even better in what I do. So to hunt stages... Win the overall of uh, one week stage races, um, and uh, the biggest, uh, yeah, the biggest uh, dream of mine is to win the biggest one day races in the calendar. Um, I'm actually happy. I think at the start of my career, from at in 2014 when I turned professional, after I moved uh, on from the under 23 ranks, there was definitely a possibility to turned me into a GC rider for the Grand Tour also. But I think that train is long, long gone. I think you need to train in a completely different way. Um, I was probably, because I came in the sport when it was still moving on from its dark past and um, the methods of training and nutrition were not as scientific as they are now. Um, I think now it's probably easier um, and more methodic to recognize the young talent and actually put point them in the right direction. And um, I would now say, fortunately for me, <laughs> uh, this wasn't the case 10 years ago. And uh, I was always, yeah, uh, at the start when I turned professional, they just thought I wasn't uh, actually good enough. Um, and they... Yeah, they considered me a GC rider, but I wasn't good enough, so they just used me as a double stick. And um, I don't think that was a it was a bad thing, but I think with different uh, with what I know now, with different training and nutrition, I would have been better. Um, but because of that, because I ended up sometimes doing leadouts for the sprinters, I uh, learned other things, and I learned how to be efficient in the peloton, and I became more punchy, and, uh, suddenly after a couple of years in 2018, I realized that I'm actually good enough to fight, uh, for stage wins and one day races in some, yeah, uh, maybe not on the highest, highest level, but at some minor Tour races or major, uh, lower tier races. So, um, I kind of went into that direction and I never turned back since I started to do classics in the, the year after in 2019 and I loved it immediately. Um, it's different racing when you're in Belgium uh, for those races in the spring. And uh, yeah, those are uh, now um, together with the tour trying uh, to try and go for stages, the biggest, the biggest goals of the year always.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, well, Gosh, I had another question, but I I just need to ask this one because you actually mentioned it. Uh, You said different training and nutrition. Maybe training is too hard to get into right now, but what have you changed in your nutrition? Because it's been a hot topic. We talk about it with so many of our guests, but can you give us an example of how your nutrition has changed before, during, or after the race?
2: Yeah, so I think Jens and me would, would be able to spend another episode uh, talking about this because it's been uh, incredible change. So the, the best example of me saying how different it is is to tell you guys that I vividly remember that a bottle of Malto when I started in 2014 was 30 grams of carbs and I still see it now, 10 years ago or 9 years ago, inside my brain, how that bottle of Marta with 30 grams of carbs in house a little bottle was like a rocket ship, you know, a rocket ship, like the, the the most energetic drink that you could possibly have. So you only touched it if you really, really needed it, you know, like to <laughs> to have... Two bottles of malto in training in a five hour ride would be like, who are you you sure? You know, like, I don't know. eh? Uh, The trainer and the coaches would be like, "Mm," looking at you and looking if you're skinny enough to actually have that, or maybe it was too much. And we were told, never mind training, we were told in races to eat up to 60 grams of carbs per hour. I think Jens still can confirm that, no? Absolutely. uh, (laughs) uh yeah if today uh the nutritionist comes up with an idea to have 60 grams of carbs in a training ride in an easy training ride everybody would be like in their minds in their minds like thinking what what, what's he doing like what's what's he's what's he saying like we can't survive on 60 grams of carbs possibly no chance even for a three hour ride no chance now we go up to i don't know uh 120 for uh for hard stages and for the classics i I use 140 or 150 for the second and third hour of the race. And uh, that's not double, that's more than double. And considering that cycling, yeah, basically is a road cycling is, in a race like Montreal, it's just a game of who has bigger glycogen stores or who depletes them the last. Because I think if we did half more lap, then every single rider in the peloton would hit the wall. And I think uh, maybe just Adam and uh, Paul didn't hit the wall in that race. I hit the wall pretty hard in the in the last lap. And I think some of my colleagues did that the laps before. And it's just what it is. And uh, it used to be way, way worse. And I remember in 2014, my first year, I bonked every single training ride and every single race, I think. Like out of 365 days in the year, I probably bonked 220 times. And it's not the best solution, there is. I don't think it's the best strategy. So the nutrition changed quite a bit. And yeah, in Italy, I was an Italian team. We were given probably, I don't know, I would guess it was an 80 grams of carbs worth of pasta after a five-hour training ride, where we averaged 170 watts, of course. And now, when you are in January training camp, you come back from, uh, from the right in Altea with our team, with Bahai Victorious. We, uh, Because I usually I like to train. I like to push in training also, so I sometimes come back with 250 or 260 average. And uh, yeah, 310, 320 normalized, and I probably eat on average, during training camps and races, on average per meal, mm. breakfast, lunch, dinner, I eat like 100, between 180 and 220 grams of carbs per meal. And I think back then it was maximum... If you had 150, you were carb loading for San Remo, basically. Or actually, no, if you... Like, there was most days that you had too little, and then the day before San Remo, you probably had not 220, but like 280 grams, which was even worse, <laughs> or before the age, because then you could soak up... Everything, but it doesn't work like that. So a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of wrong ideas, I think, back then.
1: Hey, um, my last question is, um, you're racing what I think is a golden area or golden era of cycling, and you are a very, very good rider. You're so much better than, than I ever was. But is it sometimes frustrating for you that you have to go up against Wout von Art, Matthew van der Poel, Wingegaard, uh, uh, Pitcock. There are so many superheroes, and it feels like out of 100 races, six riders win 50 or 60 of them, just these six superstars. Is that sometimes frustrating, or you go, oh, this is awesome? I can't wait to race him again tomorrow.
2: No, I think it's an honor. Um, I think it's an honor to, to live in this time as a cycling fan, also. And um, I just consider myself lucky to be able to do this job. Uh, I'm grateful for every single day. I enjoy it a lot. Um, It works also uh, with my family. I'm grateful that, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, I can do what I do because I would still end up cycling after uh, after day job, surely two or three hours a day because I couldn't live without it. So... uh, I might as well get paid for it, no? (laughs) Whilst I'm at it. And uh, yeah, I think in future, uh, the way I see cycling is going to evolve. It will get even more um, like this. Even more, uh, there will be even uh, bigger superstars in the future. Cycling will change further. I think um, some teams are already doing it better than the others. uh, Going into more detail and I think uh, in I'm um, would be very uh, surprised to see if in 10 years uh, cycling is not going to become like football I think eventually it's going to end up that all the team more or less uh, lives in the same city trains together has a physio together in the afternoon analyzes together um, for the past races planning for future races all life planned and um, support given at 100% for every single detail or aspect of uh, human performance and yeah, it's just uh, we are on a very tight schedule Uh, the year passes by so quick and if you need to dedicate enough time to testing, uh, training nutrition, planning, educating uh, preventing uh, injuries and all that sort of stuff you just need Full dedication and commitment, and I think now today in the mo- in the way things are now, some of us we do it on our own behalf or with uh, with huge help of our team. In my case, and uh, maybe some other, uh, some of my colleagues are not as lucky with in some other teams. But I think in future it's definitely gonna evolve. I think, uh, yeah, um, in ten years time, the best teams. I'm gonna probably live in the city where I grew up because it's the best place to be a professional and cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> and have uh training rides, uh, follow-up cards, uh, uh physiology in the afternoon, massages and uh, any treatment they would need. Uh yeah, all uh supervised by by their team, by their uh, employer. So uh it's yeah, it's what I think is gonna happen and it's inevitably gonna lead to to big, big superstars, even bigger show, even better racing and uh Yeah, I think it's uh, something to look up to.
1: Hey, uh, Maté, thanks a million for giving us so much of your time, even though you're jet-lagged and tired and looking forward. You probably need to still pack your suitcase for the family holiday. So (laughs) thanks a million for being our guest. It was absolutely fantastic, and we felt honored to have you as our guest. Have a great holiday. Have a great end of the season, and hopefully next year we can talk again. So thanks one more time for being our guest tonight.
2: Thank you guys for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, uh, I hope the, the listeners enjoyed.
1: Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to
0: Matej for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five star review and don't forget to share us with your friends. This show was a Velo
1: production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced
0: and edited by Mark Payne. Remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens and give us a follow. Mate is one of the sport's biggest innovators in tech. Let us know what tech you'd love to see on a bike.